Song of Solomon chapter 5. So I love this chapter. This one is a, a unique one. Similar to last week was a unique one. Um, it focused more on the bride, uh, speaking about the bridegroom. And um, chapter 5 is kind of the flip uh, because it's more of the bridegroom and some of the more things about the bridegroom. But it's another dream that unfolds. But there's just some really, really cool stuff that's in here. And, uh, and I think that it could definitely be eye-opening for us this morning. So chapter 5. Chapter 5, uh, a dream of the lover's disappearance. And um, historically, it's, a, it's the same thing. Doctrinally, it's the churches and Israel's fellowship with Christ. And devotionally, learning to immediately obey our convictions and have a proper view of Christ. One of the things that I really want you guys to learn is that when God moves in you, when he is stirring in your heart, when he is convicting you or drawing you to do something, don't wait. Do it. Because what I've found in my life is that if I delay my obedience, more often than not, I just don't do it. I just don't obey. Because the flesh can work its way in. Um, your thoughts can cloud your judgment. When God is convicting you, it's, it's the best for you to just go and do it right then and there regardless of how you may feel. Because if you do that, God will honor that, and it will help to stick those things in your life. That is a character quality that you really need to have. And so there's going to be some elements here within chapter 5 where we're going to see how important that really is. So the first thing that we're going to see here is the bridegroom's invitation. Now, this is kind of cool. So somebody read verse 1 for me. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1. Go ahead. Okay, so this is the bridegroom speaking, and he says this, and it's just very interesting because when you start to really write this out and break this down, it's interesting how he words this because really what we see from the first part of, of verse 1 is that Jesus has prepared everything for our salvation and spiritual growth. Absolutely everything. I mean, Hebrews 12.2 talks about how Jesus is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And what's interesting about this is that if you take a look at it from the first part of this, it says, I've, I've come into my garden, which is obviously talking about from what happened at the last part of chapter 4, where it says, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. And we finished chapter 4 talking about how Christ should come into your life at any point in time, and he should find fruit. He should be able to find fruit. It's not one of those things where, oh, Christ is coming, let me now do what's right. That's not how it works. I know we sometimes do that, and the illustration I talked about last week is that when company comes over to your house and things are not in order, and things need to be cleaned and picked up, company's coming over, let's go ahead and get everything ready for everybody, because we don't want to be embarrassed, right? I mean, that's the thought behind it. And so you can't do that with Jesus, because you don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he's going to show up. You don't know when he's going to need you to do something for him. You just don't know. You need to always be prepared. And so you need to live a life where you've been walking with God. You've been responding correctly so that when he shows up into your garden, into your life, there should be fruit there for him to partake of every single time. But we don't do that. We're often very, very lazy. And when the day comes, that's why we're procrastinators. Oh, I've got that assignment to do. It's due tomorrow. When are you going to do it? tonight how long have you had four weeks <laughs> oh okay just checking all right like you can't live life like that by the way you can't 
just wait until you get to college. You can't do that. <laughs> There's no way you can do that. And then for those of you that decide to take college online, you can't do that. <laughs> Believe me, you can't do that. I tried it. I got my first D in my life because I did that. It did not work. And by the way, when you get into the work world, you can't do that either. You can't do that. If you do that, you're going to get um, fired. <laughs> you can't do it. And yet, that's what we do now. And so spiritually speaking, we need to grow up. We need to mature. And you need to understand you need to walk with God daily. You can't expect, like, for example, VBS. VBS is a great example. And we've worked, you guys, for years on VBS. VBS, the day comes. It's Monday. I prayed and got right with God the day before. Everything's good now. No, you cannot do that. You need to spend time three months ahead. That's why we do VBS training, to start walking with God then because you're teaching children the word of God. You cannot, you cannot do something where I'm going to get my heart right the, the week before or the day before. Camp's coming up. Do not wait until camp to get your heart right. It doesn't work like that. If you want to maximize your time at camp, here's what people typically do. They don't walk with God. They're like, but camp's coming. I need camp so desperately. But I'm not walking with God now. Whatever, whatever. I got camp. And so then you got Sunday. They start to get convicted. The Monday, they hear the messages. They get convicted. Tuesday, messages convicted. By Wednesday, they're like, ah, oh, all right, I need to change. And they finally break. And then Thursday, they write down their commitments. And then they go home. And then two weeks goes by. They fulfill their commitments and they do what's right. And then three weeks go by, they skip maybe one or two days. And then four weeks go by, five weeks go by, six weeks go by, and by the time school hits again, you're still back to the way you were when you started. And the issue is not that you know, you're know you some horrible person. That's not the issue because that's how I tend to feel when I start to get like that. It's not that I'm horrible. It's just that I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared. That's why I love verses like Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Before Ezra could get in there and start teaching people God's words, he himself had to have been doing it all along. He had prepared his heart to seek, to do, to teach. That's how it works. You seek God, you do what he says, now you have the ability to teach it. And so when it comes to camp, you should be preparing your heart now. Preparing your heart now because that way, before you even get here on Sunday morning, you start packing up the vehicle, that you are already convicted and you're already responding properly to God then. So that way, as soon as he begins to speak to you, it starts to further settle those things down in your heart. That's what you need to do. And that's what most people do not do. So think about that. Think about that. Because here in chapter 5... Jesus Christ shows up, Solomon, I am coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I am here. I'm ready for my fruit. I want to have fellowship with you. But by that time, then we start to walk with God, and it does not work that way. It does not work that way. So it's very, very important. Very important. And so then he says that he, um, he's coming to his garden, and he's gathered my myrrh with my spice. Now, what is this in correlation to? We've already talked about this in a couple other chapters. What's the myrrh and spice? What do those things represent? Baking? No. <laughs> Come on. Yep. Like yep. Got to smell good. What's myrrh associated with when it comes to Jesus? Burial and resurrection. Yeah, because it was burial. Birth. birth. Yep. He was given myrrh at birth, right? 
So the death, burial, life of Jesus Christ, the myrrh, and his spices, the same thing as the burial spices and everything that they would embalm, not embalm, but wrap people in. Um, and so it's a correlation there to his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he says, I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. What does that represent? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Honeycomb and honey. The word of God. The word of God. Out of Proverbs, out of Psalms, we looked at a few different passages where honey and honeycomb is the word of God. So he has eaten, which by the way, um, if you think about it in these terms, he himself had to learn the word of God, even though he was God and he is the word incarnate. It's said that he had to grow in wisdom and stature. Jesus Christ had to grow in wisdom and stature. So that means that when he was younger, he had to actually take God's word and apply it to his life. Now, what? I thought he was Jesus. Yes, exactly. But he actually had to do what God told him to do. And that's what it means. It's not enough just to know because Jesus knew the word of God. He had to actually then do it. He had to apply it to his life. And that's one of the amazing things about Jesus as our example is that he was born into this world. He was raised within a family. He learned to trade. He learned how to function in the world. He was, came into interaction with, with lost people, people that were walking with God, people that loved Jehovah. And, but he had to apply those things to his life, just like you and I do. And that's what it means where he grew in wisdom and stature. He applied the word of God. So Jesus ate the honeycomb and the honey. And then he says, I've drunk my wine with my milk. Now, the wine there is not fermented wine. He talks about the blood of the grape. That is also in representation of the Last Supper, where it's in, it talks about him being like his blood, his blood being shed. So that's a great representation there, too. And then milk. What does milk represent? The Word of God. Yep. Because of Hebrews chapter 5 talks about how the Word is like milk. And what does milk do? Yes, strengthens those bones. Yes. And so uh, when it comes to the word of God, when you consume the word of God, it is like milk that helps give you the calcium to strengthen your whole skeletal system. When you think about it from that perspective. So he's drunk his wine with his milk. And then he says this, eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. So what I love about this is this tells you a lot about your relationship with Jesus Christ. He has made everything ready. Everything is ready. All you need to do is to come and sit down and partake in your relationship with Christ. That's all you need to do. He's taking care of everything else. All you need to do is to sit down and partake in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And he will be there. And he will help to sustain you and to grow you and to mature you. But you need to be there. You need to be there. I love how he gives that. I love how he gives that. And one of the examples I already mentioned in a little bit of uh, Luke 2 where it talks about how Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Think about this for a second. Jesus had to go through things like Luke 2 where he applied the word of God to his life as he grew up as a child and became a teenager and all that stuff. But then came the day where Matthew chapter 4 unfolded. What happened in Matthew chapter 4? Yes, the temptation with the devil. So the devil showed up, tempted him, at least three times it's recorded. And what was Jesus' response every single time? It is written. He knew the Bible. He knew the Bible. At the moment of temptation, he was prepared. You can't expect that in the moment of temptation, if you are not prepared, that you're going to come out winning. It's not going to work. You need to prepare yourself ahead of time. If Jesus Christ did not take the word of God and consume it and make it a part of his life and apply it, 
he would have not been prepared for Matthew chapter 4. And if Jesus would not have been prepared for Matthew chapter 4, we would not be here today. And the devil would be ruling over God like he wants to out of Isaiah 14. Jesus was prepared. That's a great lesson for you. If you want to win in the battles in your life spiritually, if you want to win, if you want to be wise, if you want to make good decisions, you have to prepare yourself ahead of time. You have to. You cannot expect in the moment, later, down the line, to succeed if you're not preparing for it now. You can't. You can't. And that's hard at this stage of your life because you don't see those things now. And so what you got to do is you got to take my advice by faith and believe me, you won't regret it. But if you don't, you will regret it because there are things in my life that I regret because I didn't listen to the people that were trying to lead me and shepherd me. But Jesus invites us to eat and drink abundantly. Eat and drink abundantly. Take a look at, hold your spot here and go over to Isaiah 55. And someone else look at John 10.10. 10. Go ahead, you take it. John 10.10. 10. Everyone go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah, just a book over. Isaiah 55. All right, verse 1, Isaiah 55, it says this, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So that is a great, great application there to Jesus, Jesus Christ, because in the Gospels, he, did, he basically said the same thing. He called himself, he was the fountain of living waters, and he says, whoever is thirsty, come. I love that about God. It doesn't cost anything to go and partake of the benefits of God. Now, it will cost your life for sure, but it doesn't cost you anything. There's nothing that you can give God for him than to give you living water or to give you uh, the bread of the word of God to sustain you. It doesn't cost you anything. I mean, if you want to put it in terms of, of, I guess, what it would cost you is just your humility. But that's it. That's it. Humble yourself, but he's there. He's willing to give you almost everything you could ever need or want freely. But we just don't, we don't take advantage of it. We don't take advantage of our relationship with God the way we should. And I mean that in a good way, not a bad way. And then John 10.10. 10. Go ahead and read that one. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That was one of the purposes of Jesus coming to the earth. He came that they might have life and have it more abundantly, abundantly. And I would say that's something that each of us wants. I mean, I don't think there's any person in here that would say, no, I don't want, no, I don't want anything in my life. I don't want anything good. I don't want anything to succeed. I don't want anything to go well. I don't, I don't want, no, Mm -mm. nope, just give me death. I'll take death. I'll take destruction. I'll take uh, just terrible relationships, bad decisions. I'll do, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. No, (laughs) no, no. If you think that way, you're an idiot. And it's just this plain and simple. No, Jesus Christ came, came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly, for you to have an abundant, full, joyful life. If you are not experiencing an abundant, full, and joyful life, then you are not walking with God properly. Now, that does not mean that bad things are not going to happen. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Because even through the bad stuff, even through the things that are discouraging, you can still have an abundant, full life. You still can. It's still possible. The issue is that when those things arise in our life, we tend to focus on it. 
we tend to focus on us and we take our eyes off of him. What I have learned and what I've found is that when bad stuff happens in my life and things that are very discouraging, that they hurt, that they're painful, I tend to want to focus on that. But I can't do that because if I focus on that, I am going to be miserable. Miserable. I need to focus on him and say, God, I don't know what in the world you're doing, but I know you're doing something because I know you love me. And so I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to trust you even though I don't understand what's going on. And I'm going to trust that you're just going to work this out however you want it to work out and it's going to be for my benefit. And I'm telling you, you can have an even stronger relationship with God when you go through difficult circumstances. That's the way it's supposed to work. All right, so you got the bridegroom's invitation. Let's go back to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. And let's take a look at this. And we'll probably only have time to go through this part, uh, which is fine, because I want to spend some time on this. This is pretty, pretty cool. I love how this is worded. I love the pictures that are here. And it goes right in line with everything we were just talking about. So we got 2 through 8. I'm going to read 2 through 8, and then we're going to walk through it. All right, so here's the bride. And she begins to speak here in verse 2. And she says, I sleep, but my heart awaketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door. My bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. All right, so this is really interesting how this lays out. So first of all, she says, I sleep, but my heart waketh, is the voice of my beloved that knocketh. So the first thing that I wanted to point out here is that it is our tendency to sleep and to stay asleep. How many of you love sleep? I do. When you become a parent, you don't get it as much anymore. So enjoy it now. Sleep is something that we all love. I mean, we do. Now, there's some people that they, they want more of it and they can't get it, and that's fine. But spiritually, spiritually, sleeping is not a good thing. Why? If you're asleep spiritually, what does that mean? You're not growing. You're not doing anything. You're missing out. Have you ever tried to wake someone that's in a deep sleep? It's hilarious. <laughs> so the other night, uh, actually I think it was about three weeks ago, um, I woke up Lucas because I was going to give him some medicine. And this kid, I mean, he's generally my light sleeper, so I usually have no problem. Uh, Lily's the one that's the heavy sleeper. She's a lot like me, where, you know, you can have a car crash outside the window and you still don't hear it, which that's happened to me before. And, um, and so Lucas, he had just gone to sleep. You can tell he was in a really, really deep sleep. So I get into his bed because he has this tent thing. You know, the, the kids this past Christmas, whatever, they have the tent thing. And it's got the light, whatever. So anyway, so he's got this tent. So I almost have to like, crawl in. And so then I, I'm like, Lucas, get up. Lucas, and I have the medicine in my hand. I'm like, Lucas, I'm like, Lucas. And so he like turns a little bit and just, just flips over. I'm like, Lucas. And so finally I got my hand underneath him and I'm like, Lucas, Lucas. And he's like, uh, and he's still in to like, go back to me. Like, Lucas, I need to give you medicine. I get to the point where I'm actually speaking loud. I'm like, 
Lucas, I need to give you medicine. And he's still, I mean, he's out. He is out of it. And I'm like, oh, I saw this. And I'm like, this is such a picture of us spiritually. There's so many times that we might be in such a stinking deep sleep in our walk with God because of our sin, because of our ignorance, because of whatever, whatever the reason is that we're asleep. And Jesus Christ is bending over, wanting to give us medicine because we're sick. And we won't wake up. Now, you cannot give medicine to a child that's sleeping. It just doesn't work. You know why? When you put medicine in the mouth, it then falls out. It does not work. You cannot do it. They have to be at least some, somewhat conscious to receive the medicine because they need to swallow it down into their body for it to work. This is such a great spiritual picture for us. Jesus Christ sometimes has to lift you up out of bed and hold your face for you to understand that he's trying to get your attention and for you to take the medicine that he needs you to take so you can get well. But we just won't wake up. That's a problem. That is a problem that we have. And that's why the Bible is full of statements, like in Romans 13, where it talks about, Awake, O thou that sleepest. Awake. But let me show you something that's really dangerous. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. It's in between 12 and 14. All right, Matthew 13, and take a look at verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together the first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." See, verse 25 tells you that if you are sleeping spiritually, the enemy is walking into the field of your life and he is sowing tares. He is sowing tares among the wheat. Now, think about this logically. If an enemy is sowing tares and they begin to grow among the wheat, what problems would that cause in the field? The wheat won't have enough nutrients. Yes. The wheat are not going to have enough nutrients to grow properly and to grow full the way they should, should be growing properly and full because the tares are taking away the nutrients from the ground that are supposed to be for the wheat. This happens in my life. This happens in your life all the time. When we sleep spiritually, stuff happens in our life that sucks out life and resources that belong to God and they are wasted. And this is what ends up becoming that wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. Instead of it being gold, silver, and precious stones, now this becomes the wood, hay, and stubble. See, the wood, hay, and stubble, it's not just bad decisions. Those are things that should have been gold, silver, and precious stones. That was their intent. That was their purpose behind it. But because of us and the things that we allow into our life, it, the things that should have been gold, silver, and precious stones have become wood, hay, and stubble. Now, I don't know exactly what all those things are, 
I mean, I don't, only you know that. This isn't between you and God. There's certain things that I might be able to observe and I could make comments on or I could give my perspective on, but those are things that are between you and God alone. You need to really, really be careful when you are sleeping spiritually. All right, go back to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. What I love about God is that with him, there's always hope. And so even though she says, I sleep, she says, but my heart awaketh, the voice of my beloved that knocketh. So God is always trying to get to our heart. It's not enough for us to understand with our mind. He has to get to our heart. And so our heart should always be receptive to his voice, always. But notice the way it says this. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks are the drops of the night. Where else in the Bible do you see someone who is Jesus Christ or a type of Jesus Christ knocking on a door asking the people to open? Laodicea. Laodicea. Revelation 3. Revelation 3. Look at this. Revelation 3, verse 20. Jesus is speaking to believers in Laodicea. And this is what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. See, that is God's desire. He's always on the outside knocking when we're asleep on the inside, not letting him in. Because when he wants to come in, he should be allowed in. He should. And he's knocking, but we have to open the door. God cannot force his way into your life. It doesn't work like that. God cannot just force his way in and have his way. He doesn't do that. He needs to be invited. He needs to be welcomed in. And this isn't just for salvation. Sure, it covers salvation, but it covers everything. Because we have this tendency as Laodiceans and as sinners, frankly, that he comes in at salvation and he starts to make his place comfortable. And there comes a point where we're just like, mm, all right, Jesus, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to go. I need my space. So exit right there. And he will leave because he wants to be welcomed. So if he's no longer welcome, he will go. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation just means he doesn't have a place there anymore he doesn't feel comfortable so he leaves and so then he wants to come back in of course he does but meanwhile we've made our own place we've gotten ourselves all comfortable and we fall asleep when he really wants to come in and that's what it's like that's exactly what it's like you need to be careful you need to really really be careful we fall asleep and he's always on the outside of the door and he's knocking but the other thing that we need to be careful of is this I'm going to read you one, one passage here in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs 1, verse 28, it says this. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Be careful. God loves to knock because he loves you. But there comes a point in time where he will stop knocking. There will come a time where he will stop calling. So when he calls and when he knocks, answer. Answer. Because that's exactly what happened to her. That's exactly what happened to her. Because look what she says. He says, open, open to me. And so then he calls. 
And then look what she says. I put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? I can't get out of bed. If I get out of bed, that means I'm going to have to put my coat on. If I get out of bed, it means I'm going to have to put some on my feet. I don't want to defile them. It's a common excuse from a lot of Christians. Verse 4. My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door. My bowels were moved for him. That is the Holy Spirit that moves inside of you when he is trying to draw you and convict you. That's him knocking on the door of your heart. That's him stirring inside of you to obey your convictions. And then finally, verse 5, I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, because he was there. He was by there. There was myrrh. That's Jesus Christ. That's the scent. That's who he is. And my fingers were sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Now, Jesus Christ, we know that he never leaves us or forsakes us. We know that. But there comes a point where if you keep ignoring God, then he will just give you what you want. He will just give you what you want. I mean, okay, you don't want to listen to me? Okay. And it's not him being sarcastic. It's not him being mean. He wasn't welcome. And since he wasn't welcome, then when we call, and the reason why we call is because we're in trouble, and then we need him. We want to use him. We cannot look at God like that. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. We can't use God when it's convenient for us. When God calls, we answer. Even if it's inconvenient for you, answer. Obey. Even if it causes you trouble in your life to obey, who cares? It's God. God's calling. God is moving. God is calling. God is convicting you. Who who else is more important than that? No one's more important than that. You yourself are not more important than that. Don't make God wait on you. You need to be waiting on him. You should be so ready that you're waiting for him to speak. He should not be waiting on you to listen. This drives me insane with my children. And it makes me so upset and it makes me so frustrated. And then I realize, man, God, you're so frustrated with me at times. And I get it now. I get it. I tell my kids, and it makes me so mad that when I call my kids and they don't respond. They don't respond. When I tell them to come and they want to finish their thing first before coming, it makes me so frustrated because when I call, it's important. If I see they're doing something and it's not that important, I'll wait until they're finished because I care about them. It's not like I want them waiting on me hand and foot. No, I want them to finish their thing. But if it's something important and I want them there now, I will call them and I want them to be there now. And so they get in trouble when they don't do that. They get in trouble when I'm ignored. They get in trouble when they don't hear me. I heard you. No, you didn't hear me. You may have heard me, but you didn't listen to me. So many things God is just moving in my heart about this and about my walk with him. It is just so important. We've got to learn this stuff now. You've got to. You've got to. If you want to have a fruitful Christian life, you've got to. You've got to. And then take a look at verse 7. Verse 7, biblical accountability from others is essential for proper spiritual growth. Now, this is kind of a weird verse in how this is worded in here. It caught me off guard a little bit, and I was really kind of wrestling back and forth with this. But devotionally, I think there's a really good application here. Verse 7, the watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I am sick of love. All right, so who are the watchmen? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Who are the watchmen? Was that? Followers of, Followers of God? Who else? Do like sit on top of the wall and tell everyone? Yes. 
Yes, they watch on the walls for danger, for issues, for things that are coming. Devotionally, with that in mind, what is the watchman? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, disciplers. Pastors. Pastors. And who else? Come on. Yep. Deacons. Deacons, yep. Who else? Who are the watchmen and watchwomen in your life? Who are they? Parents. Yes. Good friends. Good friends that notice that there's something off in your life. And so they come to you and they say, hey, I'm concerned. Brothers and sisters, older or younger, that might do the same thing. Watchmen. Any person that is willing to walk with God and to be obedient, and then when they in turn observe other things in other people's lives that are a concern because they're a concern to God, they speak up about it. They're watchmen. Thank God for watchmen. People that are, they might even be like scared to come and talk to you because there's some sin issue in your life or there's something that they're concerned about. But praise God for watchmen that are willing to be bold enough and love you enough to call you out on things, even if they're wrong. Even if people are wrong, you should thank them because someone's looking out for you. Don't get so offended. Just take, take the, the, the privilege that someone cared enough about you to say something. Because there's a lot of people that are out there that don't care jack about you and they'll never say anything. They won't. So watchmen. And so here you have the watchmen. They find her. But what do they do? They smote her. They wounded her. And they took away her veil. Now I think the key to this one is taking away the veil. Because there's a passage which I didn't look up. I thought about it late last night while I was falling asleep. And then I fell asleep. And I didn't have time to write it down. <laughs> but... There, there, so the veil, a veil is what covers your face. Now, if you have a veil in front of your face, you can't see properly. And people can't see you properly. And so when you remove the veil, then you can see clearly and people can see you clearly. So this is a great picture of different things in our life that we just don't see straight. We don't see things properly. And the veil needs to be removed. And I think it's like 1 Corinthians, if it's not 1st, it's 2nd. It talks about how there's a veil in front of the face of Jews. And God has to take that veil away, and he takes that veil away through the reading of the New Testament to reveal Old Testament truths that the Jews need to understand. And one day that veil is going to be removed, and they're going to be able to see things very, very clearly. They're going to understand who their Messiah is and how they actually crucified him. But in our life, that veil could be sin. That veil could be, um, you know, our biased opinions of things. It could be maybe the way that we were raised. It might be... Uh, just different emotions we're having at that point in time. It could, it could be all sorts of different things, but there can be veils in our faces that don't allow us to see things properly. A watchman comes into your life and they will remove that veil so you can see clearly. They'll remove that veil. And sometimes, sometimes, like it says here, they have to smite you and wound you. They have to. Take a look at this verse. Go over to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. Verse 6, Proverbs 27, 6, what does it say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes we have to be wounded by our friends because there's things that we just don't see properly. We don't see it 
I don't know why we don't see it. It could be because of pride, sin, whatever. We don't see things. When someone else comes in and tells you what's going on, and they may or may not be right, who knows, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. They are wounding you because they love you. I look at this with my kids once again. I love my kids. I love them, and I have got to teach them. I have to guide them. I have to raise them up to to know the, the truth and to love the truth and to love God. Sometimes I have to wound my children in order for them to understand. Now, I try not to beat them to leave marks. just want to make that very, very clear. <laughs> but sometimes I have to wound my children. I do. Sometimes I have to hurt them, and not necessarily physically. It could even be emotionally. It could be just in our relationship. Sometimes I have to be hard on them because they just don't get it. They're stubborn and they're prideful and they don't see it and they're not going to win. And I'd rather wound them now than later for them to fall on their own face and the consequences be even greater. So watchmen, that's what they do. That's what they do. She's out in the middle of the night in an unsafe place and they have to wound her and take away her veil and then she goes searching for her beloved. Watchmen must be faithful, and at times that means that they have to be faithful in wounding us to remove our veil in order for us to see. All right, so that's about it. We're going to cover the second part of this uh, next week, and we're going to be talking about the description of the bridegroom. This is another really good um, devotional application of Jesus Christ and some of the things that he is and he should be in our life and our view of him. So hopefully God convicted you of something. And if he did convict you of something, please do not wait. Do something about it. Do something about it, please. Please, please. All right, let's pray. God, thank you once again for your word. Uh, Thank you for the things that you teach us. Thank thank you for the things that you guide us in. And I pray, Lord, that you would have more of us today. That we would humbly submit ourselves to your lead, to your authority. That we would not wait when we know that we need to do something now. So I pray you put that within our hearts and that you would stir us and that we would um, just obey you and do what you say because we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.